The Tragedy of Cinema podcast is intended as a family-friendly program that by extension strives to be inclusive to all people regardless of their ethnicity, gender, creed, or any other identifying factors in this incredibly diverse world of ours. With that said, some of the films we discuss may contain serious subject matters or have content considered morally objectionable by today's standards. We do not intend to condone or dismiss these aspects of these films. But our primary focus will be on what we believe our film succeeds at, some fun facts, and our personal enjoyment factors of each film. With that said, we hope you enjoy the show. turn into it's no place for kids a minute ago you said you didn't care if he drinks he said a little drink you're tearing me apart what you you say one thing he says another and everybody changes back again girls don't love their father since when since i got to be 16 stop that i love you jim i really mean it No, I don't want you to go to the police. There were other people. Why should you be the only one involved? But I am involved. We are all involved. Mom, a boy, a kid was killed tonight. <laughs> this is all going too fast you for me, You better give son. me something. You better give me something fast. Jimmy, you're very young. A foolish decision now could wreck your whole life. In ten years, you'll never know this even happened. Dad, answer her. Hey guys, welcome back to the Tragedy of Cinema podcast. I'm your host Jimbo, and once again joined by Kyle, the lovable Kyle. rebel. Today is episode 97. We'll be talking about the infamous Rebel Without a Cause. Yes. James Dean. James Dean. Late so Kyle, um, this week's questions are going to be more of a topic of discussion instead of just an all-out question for you. Um, oh, wow. So, And it's like a three-part question. Okay. okay. So here we go. Hit me with it, Jimbo. 
Number one, do you think James Dean is an overrated actor? Ooh. Uh, you just start getting, yeah, just coming out of the gates and coming out of the gates, gates early with this. Overrated actor. Um Yes. Yes, I think I think I would say so. I think uh, there's like I, looking him up, you'll find like there's more documentaries about him than films he started in the first place. He only did three films and everything else too. Like he was gone too soon, all kind of stuff. Uh, there's an almost very morbid fascination with him and his life and his career that uh, kind of goes beyond seemingly who he was as a person to me. And so I do think to to that degree he's overrated because like why are some people so fascinated with him when it's like. He was a he was a really great like version on great actor for the movies he was in, but like also it's like it's still like a small a smaller footnote in the film history in my opinion. So yes, I would say he's a right. That leads me to my second point. Okay, do you think that the only reason he became iconic or larger than life is due to the circumstances surrounding his death? Yeah, largely. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, I'm. Presumably, if he still lived, he would have gone to have, a, have an amazing career, an amazing career on his own, and all kind of stuff too, and then be more recognized as a as a um, properly rated actor, not overrated or underrated, but a properly rated actor in that case. So, and I believe he's overrated now because his life was unfortunately taken from him early. So, uh, yes, I think that's uh, a big part of claim right. to his uh, history. And do you think that he belongs with the icons Elvis Presley and Marilyn Monroe? Uh, as such being in the famous pictures of them sitting at the cafe uh, and different um, pictures uh, that has the icons from that era. I do think it's okay for that because it's 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 less of the role he played, but the aesthetic he had. He had that quintessential kind of 50s flair to him in a way that was at uh, the same time a little bit gritty, a little bit more human down to earth. That I think kind of uh, uh, accentuates both Elvis Presley and Marilyn Monroe of the time. So I think he kind of he captures that '50s aesthetic, that actual kind of like more sincere look at itself kind of idea. So I think he's okay to have that to be brought to that kind of imagery lexicon of the '50s. I think that's I think that's well earned in his opinion, in my opinion. Yeah, I just think that with the um, amount that you're going to be. Um the movies that he did, the amount of movies that he did, I think you need more of a body of work to put him into an iconic role. Um, was he good in what he did? I don't know. I haven't seen East of Eden or uh, Giants. Giants. Yeah. This is the only one that I've seen multiple times. So uh, we got it on our list to watch the other ones, which we'll cover eventually, and maybe our opinions will change. I doubt it. Um, Kyle was just sharing with me a uh, screenshot or an article where they are going to have a movie called Finding Jack, where James Dean is being CGI'd as a main character throughout the entire movie. Um, as we were discussing, we're not sure how we feel about that. Um, as Kyle stated, uh, Hollywood pretty much doesn't like that because uh, a role like that could have went to maybe an up-and-coming actor who deserved to get a breakout role instead of uh, yeah. being hindered or given to somebody that's dead, obviously, but CGI'd uh, in. Yeah, I think it kind of plays the idea of just like uh, like 
people always like it's not like a new idea to say like Hollywood is out of ideas in the same way of playing nostalgia of doing like legacy sequels or reboot sequels that we've been seeing like increasingly more in the film industry of like legacy reboot sequels you know reboot equal whatever <laughs> reboots I, I don't know what the terms are now in my head ahead and now we're in the point where like we're just like reusing dead actors and like parading them around like puppets um to avoid paying actual actors for like you know new kind of roles and contracts that might have royalties and all those although kind of the cgi might cost more than an actor would for the moment cgi might cost but like you know disney and other companies are paying for the research and development to make the cgi easier and cheaper and more believable to the human eye where like you can just like render out a person that looks photorealistic for the movie like right now we can kind of do it for the expensive movies and even like disney's doing it for their television shows it's clearly going to get to the point where like in 10 10 years maybe even less um there's going to be very easy to like reproduce an actor that is good enough looking to um do, do the role and then have like a stunt actor basically do the puppeteering work of moving the body in a live action sense um so that's kind of like a it's it's it's, it's a worrying precedent to set where now we're just going to be like, we're going to be paying the James Dean estate or the Elvis estate or whatever kind of other you know notable actor may have passed away. Or like we use like young Harrison Ford, even though Harrison Ford's still alive, to make a film instead of actually casting a new actor and like making them make big, big money. It's just a way for Hollywood to avoid having like another Robert Downey Jr. who makes like hundreds of millions of dollars in movies or Will Smith or something like that. So, you know? so let me ask you a question then. If they could CGI Heath Ledger's Joker, would you be interested in seeing it again? No. When? <laughs> no, no, no. Specifically that example, no. I mean, there, I, you could probably find an example for me that I might want to see or something like that, or just like the, uh, I can't think of one on the top of my head. Well, probably like young Harrison Ford, if you want to try something like that for like a new like a new Indiana Jones movie and actually have like like a true like fourth sequel, which takes place after the last, you know, you know after the latest movie that like takes place shortly afterwards, like a young Harrison Ford doing those kind of roles again. That would be interesting to see, right? And like that, you would kind of want to see that. It sounds interesting, or even like, you know, even like sooner in the timeline, Harry, you know, Star Wars stuff where you have those young actors, you know, that could be interesting to see. And they are kind of doing that with the TV shows. So, like, yeah, there's stories that could be told there. But at the same time, though, you still like, you want new actors to get new work. You want new generations to have new things to enjoy. Just recycling the same things over and over and over again leads to, you know, stagnation in the whole industry. And uh, that could also lead to a huge market crash for you know, long term speaking, you know. All right, Kyle, I think we've uh, rallied on about this long enough. Um, okay, I understand. So we probably need to get going to the actual movie for this you're, week. You're right, you're which right. Which is Rebel Without a Cause. So. Okay, I'll, I'll take on the lead of doing all the, 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 the stuff I usually do. <laughs> Very professional, I know. <laughs> Rebel Without a Cause, um, released on 1995. And let me 1995? See they, I, no. <laughs> no, 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 no. That would be no, very no. early. I'm that, sorry. Wow. I'm sorry. It was released October 26th, 1955. There you there go. We go. There we go. I got there. I got there. Um, directed by Nicholas Ray. Written by Stuart Stern for the screenplay and Ivor Shulman for the adaptation and Nicholas Ray from the original uh, for the original story. Um, composer was Leonard Rosenman. Cinematographer was Ernest Holler. The budget of the film was $1.5 million, which would be the equivalent of $15.9 million today. Opening weekend, it only made um, $116,000, so just one opening weekend there, which would be equivalent to about $1.2 million today. And gross worldwide was just $212,000, which would be equivalent to about $2.25 million today. So a little bit of a financial kind of hit there on that. 
Let's see here, and let's go to the uh, technical details here. We have a runtime of 111 minutes. Sound mix is mono for the optical print. Then we went to four-track stereo for the RCA sound recordings and magnetic, magnetic prints. And Dolby Digital for the DVD version of the movie. Color info, this was done in color by um, Warner, Warner Brothers Color, Warner Color otherwise. Aspect ratio, we have a 2.55 by 1. And a process that printed from that was a 35 millimeters, of course. Let's see here. Then we're going on to the awards, which I got somewhere around here in my notes right here. Um, let's see here. In 1957, it won the Golden Glow for a most promising newcomer, female, to Natalie Wood. Um, it also was nominated for the Oscars for Best Actor in a Supporting Role to Sal Mino. Best Writing for a Motion Picture Story to Nicholas Ray. And Best Actress in Supporting a Role, um, Natalie Wood. And let's see here. It also was a nominated for the Baptists for um, Best Film from Any Source in the USA. Uh, it was also nominated for Best Foreign Actor. We wrote it to James Dean. And let's see here. In 1990, it was also added to the National Film Registry. Okay, that was the reward. So moving on to the cast. For the cast, we, of course, have the... Partially overrated, James Dean. <laughs> Legendary. <laughs> Legendary. Legendarily overrated. Legendarily no. <laughs> overrated, James Dean, playing Jim Stark. Um, James Dean was also in such films as Giant and East of Eden. Um, Will is also, um, it, James is also set to reappear in a film recreating CGI for the upcoming live action movie Finding Jack sometime in 2022. So, like, end of this year or uh, later next year if it gets delayed, which it may. Um, okay, next up we have Natalie Wood playing Judy. She was in the original West Side Story in 1961, Splendor in the Grass in 1961, The Searchers in 1956, Brainstorm in 1983. The Great Race in 1965, and Gypsy in 1962. Next up, we have Sal Mino playing John Plato Crawford. Um, he was in movies such as Giant in 1956 alongside James Dean. Exodus in 1960. Who Killed Teddy Bear in 1965. Tomka in 1958. And Somebody Up There Likes Me in 1956. Jim Buckus plays Frank Stark. He was in such films as Gilgan's Island. Oh, he was on uh, in the show Gilgan's Island from 1964 to 1967. Uh, the show I Married Joanne in 1952 to 1955. And uh, he was also in uh, Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol, as well as the show between 1960 and 1962. Next up, we have Ann Dorn playing Mrs. Carol Stark. Um, they were in movies such as It, The Terror from Outer Space in 1958. Fear in the Night in 1947. Penny Serenade in 1941, and Never a Dull Moment in 1950. Then we have Corey Allen playing Buzz Gunder's son, uh, Buzz Gunderson, and yep, um, he was in such films such as Avalanche in 1978, Private Property in 1960, Thunder and Lightning in 1977, The Last Fling in 1987, and Juvenile Jungle in 1958. Then we have William Hopper playing Judy's father. He was in such films such as 20 Million Miles to Earth in 1957, The Deadly Mantis in 1958, and Track of the Cat in 1954, The Bad Seed in 1956, and Sitting Bull in 1954. And then we have Rochelle Hudson playing Judy's mother. She was in such films as Curly's Top in, 1930, in 1935, Imitation of Life in 1934, Convicted Woman in 1940, and The Savage Girl in 1932. 
Then we have one of the other um, noteworthy actors, Dennis Hopper, playing just a goon. Um, Dennis Hopper was, of course, best known for movies such as Easy Rider in 1969, Speed in 1994, Blue Velvet in 1986, Waterworld in 1995, Hoosiers in 1986, Hoosiers, represent, uh, Apocalypse Now in 1979, and True Romance in 1993. Then, finally, last but not least, we have Edward Platt playing Ray Frimick. Um, He wrote such films such as The Rebel Set in 1959, Atlantis, The Lost Continent in 1961, North by Northwest in 1959, Oregon Passage in 1957, and Designing Women in 1957 as well. And that is the cast of Rebel Without a Cause. So Kyle, go ahead and give us a quick synopsis of Rebel Without a Cause. Okay, let me take one quick drink of water for our brief silence. <laughs> this is an ASMR for you right now, folks. Tipping one back for his homies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, yes, uh, Jim Stark I is a new right yeah yeah. Oh, I'll just read that. I'll read the plot summary right here. Okay, fine. Um, Jim Stark is the new kid in town. He has been troublesome elsewhere. That's why his family had to move before. Here, he hopes to find he, he finds the love he doesn't get from his middle class family. Though he finds some of his relation with Judy and a form of his both Plato's adaptation, uh, uh, Plato's um, yeah adulation and Ray's real concern for him. Jim must uh, prove himself to his peers in a switchblade knife fights and chickle and chicky games in which cars race toward a seaside cliff. I feel like I butchered that kind of combination, but yes, yeah, new kid in town trying to prove himself, concerned for a kid trying to find love. The story of all 1950s children. <laughs> he's a new kid's on the block, and I, he's got the right stuff. That's all <laughs> I can think of. Stuff. <laughs> Start playing Wham. <laughs> All right, so oh wow, uh, careless whisper. No, okay, so um, let's talk about this movie a little bit. Uh, James Dean, he he has some weird uh, ways to get into character, which we'll talk about in the notes. Which I saw, I think one of them he gets down like a fetal position until they say action, and he jumps up and starts doing his lights. We'll talk about it. I mean, so here we go. James Dean got angry when Nicholas Ray stopped the knife fight scene after noticing that Dean had been cut on the ear and was bleeding. Dean said, don't you ever cut a scene while I'm having a real moment. <laughs> I was like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> I, I get it. I get it. Now, method actors are crazy. That's definitely a thing, too. So, yeah. Uh, the opening movie scene in which Jim Stark finds the toy monkey, uh, it was actually improvised by James Dean after the production. had began shooting for nearly 24 hours straight. He asked Nicholas Ray to roll the camera, and he wanted to do something. Ray obliged, and the improvisation went on to become the famous opening scene. The real opening scene was supposed to be um, a gang beating up a father who drops the toy on the sidewalk. Oh, jeez. The studio thought it was way too violent, so it was cut. So that's obviously where you can see where he picked up the toy and started playing with it during the opening credits. Hmm. James Dean later confessed that the film, uh, film used me up. I could never take so much out of myself again. Yeah, uh, and he never did. Kind of foreshadowing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the empty pool in which the characters sit and discuss their lives first appeared in Sunset Boulevard in 1950. The pool had been built specifically for, uh, especially, sorry, for the earlier film as a condition of renting the site from its owner, Mrs. J. Paul Getty. Tragically, James Dean died on September 30th, 1955, nearly a month before this film was released on October 27th, 1955. Oh, so we're watching his final film. I right. I the other films came out earlier. Okay, yeah. now we know. Right. 
James Dean was injured several times while shooting the Switchblade fight, during which a real weapon was used. Wow. So Old movies are crazy, guys. <laughs> <laughs> so are old people, Kyle. Don't tip, don't test that, me. That too, that too. Yeah. Um, Beware the boomer. Natalie Wood, um, we all know the mysterious circumstances uh, involving her death. Kyle, do you know what that is? No, I do not. Jim, inform it's me where this. her and Christopher Walken and the names on the tip of my tongue, they were all on a boat, and somehow she tragically drowned that night. Oh. But she had bruising all over her face and everything, so they don't know yeah. if there was some... Uh, look yeah. up who that other guy was. That's going to bother me. Okay, I'm going um, to look up Natalie just Wood. Just put Natalie Wood death, and it'll tell yeah, you. I'm sure. I'll find out. Um, so she was considered too young for the role of Judy, even though she was the same age as the character. She was at least five years younger than any other candidates except Margaret O'Brien. She adopted a mature woman's hairstyle, started wearing heavy eye makeup, and eventually attracted the notice of director Nicholas Ray, who was 43, who began an affair with the 16-year-old and gave her the part. Wow. <sighs> you know, I would say that's like, man, old Hollywood was bad. Truth is, current Hollywood's also bad about that. <laughs> right. Like we just talked about uh, Roman Polanski. Not Roman Polanski. Too, so. Oh, God. Yeah, he's much worse. Yeah. Uh, but still, t- also bad. T-shirt sells sword after James Dean wore one in this film. Uh, compare this to when Clark Gable had a shirtless scene and it happened one night, 1934. T-shirt sells dropped 40%. It's <laughs> hilarious. Jim Backus, who played James Dean's father, was also the voice of Mr. Magoo and taught Dean how to do the Mr. Magoo voice when Dean then used to deliver the line, drawn them in like puppies. <laughs> Sorry, that was a yeah. terrible Mr. I, I can't find the uh, the other um, actor referred to. I just see um, with Christopher Walken and see other ones. Uh, it's just Natalie Wood and Christopher Walken. So yeah, there's somebody else. I, I'll have to look for it. Oh, uh, Robert Wa- Robert Wagner, Wagner. Was the yeah. person interest in the ongoing investigation. There it is. That. Thank you. That was back in just 2018. So this is still like a story that could develop in the near future. Right. Watch a new story come out today after we post the podcast. <laughs> that'd be would that be crazy? Uh, the part where Jim and Judy find Plato wearing one blue sock and one red sock was not scripted. Salmino actually put them on that way by mistake. <laughs> She was having a bad morning. It's a, it's a young person thing to do. <laughs> uh, the arguments Hopper and Ray had over their affairs with Natalie Wood resulted in most of Hopper's lines being cut. Ray wanted him fired, but his contract with Warner Brothers wouldn't allow it. Mm-hmm. Actually, I, 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 I got to ask you now because we got to learn the personal notes about Jimbo and myself. Jimbo, can you wear mismatched socks? No, it drives me crazy. You can't do it? My daughter wears them, and I'm like, oh, look. Oh, my you, God. You've got another pair down here just like that. That's terrifying. <laughs> do you wear them? No, I can't wear mismatched socks. It'll drive me insane. <laughs> I know. I'd sooner die. <laughs> well, then you even got those really uh, crazy people that wear the, like, knee-high and then one footy or something. Oh, you know, like, that's just oh, really terrible. that is madness. I am, you can ask my wife, I love socks. I will buy new packs of socks all day long. And yeah. I just there's just something about a new pair of socks out of the bag. <laughs> And I have way too many socks as yeah. it is. Yeah, just, but man, there's nothing like a, a yeah. nice new pair I of fluffy like socks. The, the perfect pair of like work socks, and then like just someone, I feel like I want enough money just to buy a lifetime supply of those. If you want to get your pair of the tragedious cinema socks, go to Redbubble and <laughs> we got to work on that. Yeah, we, exactly. we might have them <laughs> when we actually get the brand really going. Full yeah. speed. <laughs> tragedious cinema socks, guys. Okay, okay here we go. Right on them. <laughs> All right, let's. Kyle derailed me with socks. 
Sock talk. Podcast coming up now. Sock talk. You've heard of pillow talk. Now here, sock, sock talk. Wouldn't it be a sock hop? Huh. All right. Uh, so basically, Natalie Wood's having affairs with everybody, it seems like, in this movie. And now uh, here we go. Uh, all three Sorry. lead actors, James Dean, Salmino, and Natalie Wood, all died prematurely under tragic circumstances. Mm. Dean died in an automobile accident in September 1955. Mino was stabbed to death on February 12, 1976, wow. and Wood drowned in late autumn 1981. In addition, Edward Platt died by suicide in 1974, and Dennis Hopper fell ill suddenly in the fall of 2009 and died five months later. Whew. Bloody film. <laughs> it's just, it's harsh. It's, just, yeah. it's like one of them films that's cursed. You yeah, know what I mean? the tragedy surrounds it, yeah, unfortunately. Uh, by the way, Natalie Wood was also the little girl Susan in Miracle on 34th Street. You did not. I did original. not know that. I did not mention that. In the, in You've the probably never seen it. I have not seen Miracle on 34th Street. You've never seen the original Miracle on 34th Street? Have you seen any Miracle on 34th Street? No, I've not seen any. All right, Kyle. Well, we already did them for Christmas. So I, you I, have to you watch it. Definitely, I could definitely imagine myself having sat through it when I was a child on Miracle 34th Street. No, you would it. remember it. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Then I definitely haven't seen them. No, I, I don't remember haven't. ever seen Miracle 34th Street. I don't remember anything. I basically kids, am kids yeah, these days. Yeah. All right. Realizing the actor's power to touch youthful audiences, Nicholas Ray gave James Dean free reign to improvise his scene. The cast often took his cues not from Ray, but from the method interest Dean. Hmm. Originally based on a nonfiction work by Robert M. Linder about the hypnoanalysis of a young criminal, producer Jerry Wald uh, commissioned several scripts to be made, including one by none other than Theodore Geisel, better known as... Dr. Seuss. Dr. Seuss. Uh-huh. I wonder if that could be the reason why he was seen as like uh, so highly praised today because he, maybe he was like one of the, you know, method acting wasn't as common in the 1950s as it is now, for instance. So maybe that's why, like, him being a young and noteworthy Methodist actor who goes all out to try and a get A Methodist his mind. actor? Why'd you have to bring religion into it? Yeah, you're right. You're right. A, a method focused actor, and so like that. You know, I'm actually in. I'm actually of the mind that actually I like actors who are just like, no, you just act, you do the job. And now actors like Jared Leto or whatever, are like, oh yeah, no, I only ate snails for a year to get ready for this role. It's well, like you also could have tried acting. You could have. We, done we are basing this on one movie. We haven't watched the other one, so yeah. after we see that, then we'll talk about. You're that. right. You're right. Yeah, down the line. Right. Future notes. When the crew began night shooting at the Griffith Park Planetarium in Hollywood, downtown Los Angeles, residents saw the bright production lights in the hills and started flooding the switchboards with reports of raging forest fires. Wow. Okay. (laughs) Although playing a teenager, James Dean was actually 24 when the movie was filmed. Natalie Wood and Salmino, however, were of the right age. Mm Mm-hmm. James, what were you doing when you were 24, Jimbo? Uh, let's I, wasn't see, well, I, was, I wasn't starting the best I was, in my uh, life. I was three years married and uh, I believe uh, had my son already. Oh, wow. Okay. So. I wasn't. <laughs> uh, James, I was living at home. <laughs> James Dean, Natalie Wood, Nick Adams, and Salmino were all inseparable foursome while filming. Soon after the premiere of East of Eden in 1955, so this came out the same year. East of Eden came out the same year. Oh, wow. It became clear that James Dean had achieved star status. Modern sources speculate that because of his new box office appeal and the growing success of Teenage Rebel movies, Warner decided to upgrade this film, budgeting it with more money and production time and ordering that it be filmed in color after they had already started shooting in black and white. Oh, wow. Okay. So, Ann Dorn said, uh, Jimmy... Did most of his of the directing. He gave us our lines. He dominated the entire thing. Dean's and Nicholas Ray's working relationship was equally bizarre. Ray often rehearsed with Dean at his Chateau Marmont bungalow. 
and felt the energy between them were so powerful that he actually recreated his own living room on the set to inspire Dean. Duran also recalled Jimmy was a strange boy. Boy, I've heard that called. I've been heard, told that many a times in my early childhood. Um, on the first day, Jim Backus couldn't believe it. We were watching Jimmy doing his scene, and someone had said, Quiet, we're going to shoot now. And they got up speed and were ready for action. Jimmy went down on the floor in the fetal position for the longest time. It seemed like half a can of film, and Nick said, Action. Jimmy stood up and went into the scene. Jim and I had never seen this method of doing things. Nick seemed to be mesmerized by Jimmy. Oh, wow. Okay. So, all the more reason why he's such a highly praised actor today, I guess. You know, once again, we get more than that when we come It's like Kyle. Course. He he lays here in the fetal I, I, position until yeah. we, we start recording, and he hops right up and ready yeah, to go. But I do it for a very different reason. <laughs> <laughs> it's oh, funny, but man. it's also quite sad. <laughs> uh, James Dean badly bruised his hand during the police station scene where he physically vents his rage on a precinct desk and had to wear a, a bandage on his... Uh, hand for a week oh wow frank mazzola who plays crunch in the film was an actual street gang member when he was a student in hollywood high school he was a member of a gang called the athenians as such he served as technical advisor to director nicholas ray and coached other actors as to street gangs attitudes and mannerisms yeah so here's the way you're just you're rude to everybody that's the rule okay <laughs> Very good. Uh, the 1949 Mercury Coupe James Dean drove in the movie as part of the permanent collection at the National Automobile Museum in Reno, Nevada. Cool. Dennis Hopper and Natalie Wood had a brief relationship during filming. Wood also had an affair with Nicholas Ray, which was scandalous due to the fact that she was only 16 while he was 43 and older than her father. As revealed oh. by informed sources to Vanity Gross. Fair magazine in 2005... Ray also had an affair with Salmino. <sighs> Scandalous Hollywood. Just, just shake my head. Disappointed yeah, Dennis Hopper, man. <laughs> if you're in your 40s, don't date a 16-year-old. Well, that wasn't Dennis Hopper. Dennis Hopper was young, too. Oh, okay. That was the the. Person. Oh, the other the other yeah. person was the, okay. Dennis Hopper's okay. Then. Yeah, Dennis Hopper. Well, he's okay. She was only sixteen still. Kyle. Still six. Okay. I'm going to retract the last twenty seconds of my life. <laughs> I deny everything. Uh, the red jacket worn by James Dean was obtained in the early 1960s by American avant-garde filmmaker Kenneth Anger and sent to the museum collection in Paris uh, of the French. Well, I don't even know this. Cinema thick. Cinema thick. Cinema Thick Cinema. Cinema Thick. Whatever. Cinema. Which had been helpful in showing and promoting his own work, but in 1972, the jacket was stolen. Oh, no. Somewhere. Somebody has Somebody it. Somebody has it. Just wears it every day. Just nonstop. Here you go, Kyle. This is more your speed. In Futurama, the outfit hey, yeah. of Philip J. Fry is based on Jim's outfit. That makes perfect sense. It's, it's that outfit, for sure. Yeah. Uh, when Jim, Judy, and Plato are exploring the empty mansion, the candles in the candelabra Plato carries were lit by a wire that ran through Salmino's jacket. Hmm. Impressive stuff. Pretty cool. Uh, the director, Nicholas Ray, uh, researched L.A. gangs by riding around with them for several nights. <laughs> you know, it always it always baffles me, you know, like like this guy going around with gangs, and then you got the people that drive around with the mob, you know, yeah. to do like Godfathers, actually with the mob. But no, yeah. no, no. This is how we would have killed him. This is how we really do it, guys. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Okay. The I'm film, awesome. I don't the, know. <laughs> the film was originally going to contain a kiss between James Dean and Sal Mino. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, based on the strong sync preview response to the film, Warner Brothers proposed a long-term contract for James Dean. That didn't work out. No. Uh, Paul Newman was considered for the role of Jim. 
Yeah, Paul Newman could done it. Paul Newman can do anything. So yeah, he could have done that too. I would, I would consider that a, a win if it was Paul Newman or James Dean. Yeah. Uh, when Jim's father comes into his room before the Chicky Run, Dean gets out of bed and removes his T-shirt. On the left side of the screen are black and white photos of racing cars. The most prominent being one that looks very much like the 1955 Porsche 550 Spider that Dean would die in on his way to a racing event. He was uh, uh, included in with that car. Oh wow. Real life foreshadowing of his death. Yay! Movie trivia is scary sometimes. Uh, except he died before the movie came out, too. Yeah, I know, but still. Uh, the switchblade that James Dean used in the fight scene at Griffith, uh, Griffith Observatory was offered at auction on September 30, 2015, by Profiles in History with an estimated value of $12,000 to $15,000, with a winning bid of $12,000. Man, that would be awesome to have in the studio here. That would be really cool. Uh, Also offered at the same auction was uh, production photographs and a final shooting script dated August 17, 1955 for a behind-the-scenes television promotional film titled Behind the Cameras, Rebel Without a Cause, hosted by Gig Young, and that had scripted interviews and stage footage by the cast and crew. The script sold for only $225, which I would have took that. Like, I understand the appeal of it. I just have no idea where I'd even keep it or if I ever do anything with it. Like, even looking at that point. Like, I buy whole art books and I just put them on a shelf. (laughs) (laughs) Debbie Reynolds. Do you know who Debbie Reynolds was? Yes. Was allegedly suggested for the part of Judy, which she could have done it. Yeah, I can see that. The support check sent uh, by Plato's parents uh, was written for some date in 1956 and was in the amount of $687.50. Just for inflation, that would equal... Or in 1956, it was equal to... $6,681.94 $6,681.94 in 2021. Hmm. James Dean, contrary to popular belief, did not get malaria during filming, as some have reported. That is false. False. Never happened. There's, factual. There's a fan of a photo of Alan Ladd in Plato's school locker. So final film of Virginia Brissick. Uh, Jeff Silver, Billy Gray, and Dennis Hopper were considered for the role of Plato. Uh, between the opening scenes and the climax, a good deal of the film was shot around the studio's back lot. Obviously, this is a Roger Ebert's uh, great movie list uh, that you should see. Among the actors who tested for roles in this film were Margaret O'Brien, Tab Hunter, Carol Baker, Bobby Driscoll, Richard Br- uh, Bamer, Susan Strasberg, Johnny Sheffield, almost a Jerry Seinfeld. Jerry <laughs> Seinfeld. Totally wow. <laughs> uh, Peggy Ann Garner, Russ Tamblin, Claude Jarman Jr., and Anthony Perkins. I recognized about half those names, actually. <laughs> all right, tell me what they were all from, Kyle. Yeah, uh, this guy was in this, that guy was in this. <laughs> you this do know. This guy was in this girl. You do know where Anthony, Anthony Perkins was Anthony in, right? Perkins, yeah. Anthony Perkins was in uh, the, the, the Godfather. I have no idea. No, I have no Psycho. idea. Psycho. 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 Anthony Perkins, Psycho. That makes sense. Okay. I could connect I the dots if you gave me like half now an hour. You got me second guessing I would, myself. I would be like, yeah, cool. Um, Plato right. had a headshot of actor Alan Ladd inside school. Like a lad was the top star in the era. Rebel was made. He was also known as shorter than average movie star, which have had a special appeal to the diminutive Plato. Yeah, that Tom Cruise shorter. James Dean's character's surname Stark is an anagram of Trask, the surname of his character in East of Eden. Ooh, okay. Hume Cronin, John Daner, Rod Cameron, Walter Matthau, and Raymond Burr were considered for Jim's father. All good actors walking out, though. That's probably the most recognizable name I see on that list. I can see him doing it. Be good. In the police station scenes, where while the dots are talking to the cops, Jim keeps humming Richard Wagner's Ride of the Valkyries, a classical piece known to his audiences both uh, because of its memorable use in Apocalypse Now. Dennis Hopper has appeared in both films. Yep. 
Actually, if we take a quick look, let me take a look at the uh, yeah soundtrack. Actually, goes uncredited for Rise of the Valkyries and the rest of the soundtrack. I can mention right here. Uh, Five o'clock whistle, also uncredited, and um, Wagon Lide Op Forty Nine Number Four Lullaby, also uncredited. That is the only soundtrack for Robot a Cause. Just after Natalie Wood says to James Dean, "Nobody acts sincere." There are four distinct notes played in Leonard Roseman's soundtrack that are the same four distant uh, distinct notes. And Wayne Walker's pop song, Are You Sincere, made famous in 1957 by Andy Williams on Cadence Records. It was felt on film uh, would have seemed more believable if the story did not take place over the course of only one day. Oh, yeah, one day. That is a lot for that film. Yeah, it makes sense, though. No, yeah, it does make sense. But, uh, yeah, it feels, like a, it feels like a lot more than one day in that whole film. You know, Warner Especially Brothers. Going to the house, having the girl say, I love you after only a day of meeting. Yeah, like Even when a you're couple 16, hours. That's a after lot. your boyfriend just died. Or yeah, after whatever. your boyfriend just died. I love you. Really? Uh, Warner Brothers it's had its nice. Midwestern Street Town Square on their back lot since 1939. In Rebel, one of its Fox buildings provided the front entrance to the police station. The same exterior was also the front entrance to the River City Library in The Music Man. That exterior was attached to the left side of Rory's High School building in Gilmore Girls. The list is practically endless for what that set was Practically used. endless for you sets, guys. Uh, the oh. cars driving through the observatory front lawn are actually used uh, using the extra wide sidewalks, which easily accommodate their size. Uh, this is the favorite film of Marsha Mason. Uh, this film is sometimes called homophobic today as the only gay character is the one who gets killed. I think that just shows... Uh, is the film homophobic? Possibly, but it also just shows like how the 50s treated um, homosexuals, which is well, and, poorly. And, you yeah. know, uh, I was talking to somebody last night, and they didn't even realize that... Uh, that was the reason that, that he was gay him. in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah that they, that he was, they didn't even realize that, you yeah. know what I mean? And they had watched it multiple times. So... Um, I guess so, if you look for things in movies, you can find them for something. You yeah, know yeah. I mean? If you look to be offended, you always find something. Right. So it has to be like, it, do you want to take it on like its best intention, or do you want to take it on what could be seen as problematic? Um, ultimately, I I wouldn't look at this film to say anything about gay rights. In my opinion, about Rebel Cause, I'd not get that read at all. Personally, Me either. <laughs> if you do personally and you take offense to it, then I really understand. But like personally, I think like the film is not something that deals with that in my in my eyes. Right. Yeah. Uh, Sal Mino once said that on the on his uh, the day his death scene was shot, James Dean never let him out of his sight the entire day. Uh, the whole film takes place over 24 hours. The opening scene of the police station takes place around 3 a.m. The ending scene takes place around 3 a.m. the next morning. Hmm. That's weird. And, and so it's uh, well, like 12 hours. Why, in case, can I ask you a question before? I, before no, we, you can't, Jimbo. Why would none of the kids go to the cops after the guy just went over the side of the cliff? Were they afraid that they would be like an accomplice, or they were getting trouble? Yeah, I mean that's the thing. Really, you want to say it's like it's young dumb kids, and because James Dean wanted yeah. to go to the cops, yeah, remember? go to the cops and say like, yeah, like hey, a terrible accident's happened. Like you know, you don't have, you don't have to mention the fact like, oh, we were playing around or doing a competition with gang kids. You just like, say, hey, I see this car go off the side. I of just the saw road. this kid go. The, side of the, the kid's dead now. Terribly sorry to the parents. You know, that's that's the thing you can say. Like you don't have to say like, why were you there? Because I like walking, <laughs> you don't you don't need an excuse. You just, you just know what happened, and like either way, it's not your fault. You're not going to be held accountable to that degree. But you know, young kids make rash decisions. That's how it goes. You know. So we've already established uh, the knife fight. They use real switchblades between uh, James Dean and Corey Allen, who played Jim and Buzz. But also to protect themselves, they wore chainmail under their vest. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so it's a real night fight. Here, Frodo, I give you the mithril armor. <laughs> Your mithril armor. Jeez. An, alter- an alternative ending was shot in which Plato falls from the tower of the planetarium. Uh, the Chicky Run was staged at Warner Brothers uh, property in Calabasas, California. The cars drove on flat land that led to a small bluff only 10 to 15 feet high. The cars drove over the small bluff, but the cliff, supposedly overlooking the ocean, was built on a stage 7, now stage 16, at the Warner Brothers lot in Burbank. The constructed cliff overlooked the stage's flooded water tank, and the actors looked down uh, upon the water from the edge. Even so, it became necessary to map in the shots of the Pacific Ocean in the final print. When the scenes were shot for the Chickadee Run aftermath, when the teenagers run to the edge of the cliff to look down, they witnessed what looked like the sun rising and exploding. Steffi Sidney, who played Mill, would later comment that it looked like an atomic bomb went off, and it was. What they witnessed was Zucchini, the 14th and final fission bomb, weighing 28 kilotons, launched for Operation Teapot. Oh, wow. Small world. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Of all the bombs to yeah. drop, of all the times. <laughs> right then and there. Yeah, insane. Right. In the final scene where the camera pulls away from the observatory, director Nicholas Ray is the person walking towards the building, possibly director's trademark for his rumor he appeared in all of his movies. And last but not least, in 2010, a New York Times article about Nicholas Ray's widow, Susan, said she had in her archives an original unused treatment for Rebel in which the ending was very different. Plato was going to shoot Jim and then blow himself up with a grenade. However, another Times report in 2011 says the archive contains a Ray storyboard that shows it's Plato himself who was shot from the top of the planetarium. A treatment is a preliminary synopsis of the story from a proposed movie that either gets written before the script is started or, as in this case, afterwards, so that executives at a potential producer's or investor's company won't have to read the entire script. Hmm. So, Kyle. Yeah. Actually, oh, one one quick thing where I kind of noticed, like the film, like I don't know if it was intentional or not, but it's implied there, kind of like at the end of the scene, like uh, uh, Jim takes, uh, well, James Dean takes the gun from Plato and then proceeds to take the bullets out of the mag- takes the magazine out, which leaves the um, the possible the possibility that there's still a round in the chamber to the point where he could still be a threat to the police or not. I don't know if that was necessarily intentional or not. That could have just been a mistake in the filmmaking process. But I kind of like that ambiguity there of like if he was still a threat or something like that or still a danger to himself and that's why he got shot um, at the end of the scene where it's like maybe he still was a threat in that one scene. So I, I just kind of I think about that after watching the film that still kind of lingers in my mind if that was intentional or not. What do you right. think, Jimbo? Do you think it was intentional? Oh, man, I mean, just kind of like he just dropped out where it was like nah, it was probably just like no, he really did take all the bullets out so he wasn't a harm and it was just an unfortunate killing or... Well, since I'm not a gun aficionado, um, is the gun they use, is there even a way that one could be left in the chamber? Yes, there is. Yes, okay. if you cocked back the handle, the gun would still be in the chamber, so immediately when you hold, pick, pull the trigger, it would gone through. Yeah. But if you counted the bullets, how many you used, and emptied that many bullets, then maybe not. Well, no, you fired one round, and like you would have well, had a cop back, so there would have been a round in the chamber still, so if you took the magazine out, there'd still be one ready to shoot inside the gun. I guess I wasn't paying attention to what kind of gun it is. It was like, it was, could have been, it it been a six-shooter cowboy gun for all I know. Cool. Yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. Well, now we know Kyle knows uh, some useless information about guns. I play some Call of Duty, Jimbo. <laughs> oh, I, know, I, know, I, know, I know. I knew it wasn't I'm because you do real guns. You do the, the, the fake guns. <laughs> oh, man. Leave it to Kyle to, 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 to swing back to a video game. Like, you're totally wrong about this. <laughs> yeah. Guns don't even exist. It was a laser pistol. Like, oh, right. Crap. It was a phaser was, from Star Trek. How about it was a prop? Mm-hmm. I don't know. They used real switchblades. Since they didn't use a real gun. <laughs> Yeah. A real gun of real bullets. True. Yeah, yeah, I never thought of that. 
All right, Kyle, tell okay. me what you think of Rebel Without a Cause. Rebel Without a Cause. Honestly, I kind of wanted to rewatch it after doing all these notes because it made the film actually sound more interesting than um, the experience I had. Um, I was honestly kind of probably bored to tears for probably the first half of it, to be honest. Um, I, I didn't really see what was really going on. I got attached to the characters. I watched it very passively and didn't feel myself getting invested at all to the point where the final half kind of came along. Um, I still just kind of like didn't feel invested in those characters, so I didn't care what was happening in the moment. So overall, I was kind of disappointed with the film, and I wish I wasn't. Um, now I kind of want to go back and try and reapproach it and maybe try and um, appreciate it more for what it was doing right. But um, I feel like um, by modern movie standards, it's just it's too slow in the ways that are important to me now, watching modern films, and this older movie just... Um, had a cadence of rhythm that didn't jive with me when I watched it in this moment. So I might go read back and try and appreciate it again for what it did right. But um, right now, my first impression of it was uh, pretty poor, honestly. I think it was a little bit of a boring film. And by the time I got to the end, I, I still didn't feel myself um, uh, feel uh, myself resonating emotionally to it. So that's my overall impression of it right now. So it could be, it's you know, could still be a very well good film that could be worth watching when you understand the context of everything. But. Uh, um, personally, right now, it's not a it's not a good movie in my book. Jimbo, how do you feel about Rebel Without a Cause? Oh man, you know, I I go back and forth on if it, if I like it or if I don't like it. Um, you see the struggle between James Dean. Um, I think it, what's he say? You're tearing me apart, which is one of the most famous quotes in movie history. Uh, because of his mother and father's relationship to him, thinking where, disaster arts, you're tearing me apart. Yeah, they're just sorry. Yeah, they're just you know the conflict that he has at home. It carries over to his social life. Um, yeah, and he's clearly a troubled young man, right? And I want to like this part film of it. Too. Part of it is him trying to fit in, I guess. Uh, the other part is you know like um, what's his name, uh, Plato. He's just like he's like infatuated with him, like. Hey, he's a new kid in town, blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I just wish the the script was a little stronger, I guess, because I was... I don't want to say getting lost at parts. It was just... Um, I don't even want to say it was hard to follow. It just wasn't well-written, I guess, is the word I'm looking for. Yeah, I, I, I Not found myself that... zoning out in a way where I wasn't paying attention to the plot, and then the, when the plot started happening, I wasn't... I couldn't follow it when it came Not out. that James like, Dean played a bad part, mm-hmm. but... It's just for your first James Dean movie. This is one of the ones that you hear over and over and over again of being his probably greatest movie. And I don't know if that's just because he died before it came out. Um, I just it was just an okay movie to me. It's not one that I have to sit and watch over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, but it's it's cool when you do notes like this and you get to see some of the stuff behind uh, the movie where you can go back and watch it and maybe put two and two together now. Yeah, uh, because I think. The more you watch it, the more you will like it. Um, so this was my first time actually watching the whole thing all the way through in one sitting. I've seen bits and pieces. Like, I've seen the, the chickadee run. I've seen the, the knife fights. You know what I mean? Very similar, but with um, you, where I haven't really watched it all the way through yet. Yeah. Right. So, like you, I do want to go back and watch it again just to see, you know, mm-hmm. what happened. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I think we're on the same page here. We're like, we, we really want to like this film a lot, but overall we kind of left it feeling... Uh, a little bit down on the whole film. And I need to see his other you know. movies to see how I really feel about James Dean. I mean, he he looks cool. I mean, he looks like the epitome of a man's man of like the, the oh, yeah. 50s. Perfect young 1950s man. Like, a, just, like a young yeah. Fon, Arthur Fonzarelli, you know, from Happy yeah, yeah, Days. You yeah. know what I mean? He just, yeah. He's just oozing with machismo, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Yeah. So to but me, in a believable way, not in like right. hyper reality way. Right. I mean, it looks like the real genuine article. Right. Yeah. So I mean, you could kind of tell like he was a rebel. I yeah. mean a rebel and a misguided young youth. But I think at the same he, time, I think you know? he has a cause. He's not, I don't think he's without a cause. I think he has a cause. Yeah. He wants his home life to be better. He doesn't want his parents to argue. He doesn't want his parents to turn away at him. Mm-hmm. He wants to be He wants you know, to be loved. He wants to love right. somebody. He wants to give his heart to anyone that will take it. Right. And know? I think that's where Natalie Wood came in and uh, you know, but that's why they love each other in this movie. You know, it just it was just yeah too fast paced for me. Um, I wish this is only 111 minutes. I wish another 20 minutes, maybe working on the script somewhere in there to link it all together better would have been better for me. Yeah, but who am I to say? Yeah, what nowadays this movie would be made very differently. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, very um, differently. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I would say watch it at least once. Um, and see if you're. I mean, especially if you've never seen it before. And now that we've went over the notes, maybe you can enjoy it more. Yeah, especially if you're listening to this podcast, haven't seen the movie, especially like going with like open mind and trying to appreciate it for what it is. You may enjoy it a lot more than we did our first times. And hopefully it's a movie that grows on us and it grows on you too. If yeah, you ever come to. back to it and be like, hey, we actually love this movie now, we'll mention it in a future podcast. Maybe one of the East to Eden or Giant podcasts will mention like, hey, we actually like Robot of Cause now. <laughs> yeah. I'm totally wrong. Yeah. I like to redact my statements. Exactly. From- redact your statements. Robot of Cause part two. Um. <laughs> Well, so with that being said, um, if you'd like to join us on our Facebook group, the Tragedy of Cinema Podcast uh, Facebook group, uh, we got merchandise on redbubble.com. We got t shirts, hats, uh, aprons, uh, kinds of cool hopefully stuff. socks. I, I need to look at that magnets, yeah, yeah. signs, posters, uh, whatever you want. Like my face um, will be a the one. Reason we, face will be another, the reason we went through red sizes, the great. reason <laughs> cardboard cut out of Kyle. Uh, the reason we went through Redbubble is because we didn't want to pay to have a bunch of merchandise sitting on hand, so people can order what they want, and have it shipped directly to them. Yeah. Um, you can follow me on Twitter, Tragedy Cinema. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, uh, I think Snapchat. I don't even know if I use that anymore. Kyle. I supposedly do a TikTok. Someday that's what, that TikTok's going to happen. That TikTok's going to rise out of the Just, thing. You don't need to remind me every three months, Jimbo, I swear. <laughs> and next week, be on the lookout for our third anniversary birthday episode. Uh, so... Uh, we're not going to tell you what it is yet. Okay. Uh, you'll just have to wait till it hits your podcast feed. Uh, but uh, it is beloved by many, especially the younger generations, I will say. Yes. Me, not so much. But uh, we'll, we'll get to that. So with that being said, I think this episode is coming to a close. And that's a wrap. And, and cut.